0: Good morning, Grace. It is, that's a very lively response. I appreciate that. It's great to be here. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like, you to, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be today in Genesis chapter 22. And if you've been with us uh, in the previous weeks, you know we've been in the midst of a series uh, entitled Living in the Supernatural and asking the question, what does it look like to live as a modern person with an awareness with the belief in, in a supernatural God. And so we're gonna continue that series, uh, series today in Genesis chapter 22, but I, I don't know if any of you have ever done something heroic? Any heroes in the room? I guess it's the norm for heroes to say, hey, look, I'm not a hero. But, but I wanna begin by talking about a hero today. Uh, imagine yourself on a subway platform. I know that's hard to do in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But a New York City subway platform, maybe it looks something like this. And I want to take you back to January 2nd, 2007. And on this subway platform is a guy by the name of Wesley James Autry. Wesley James Autry. He's a New York City construction worker. He's an African-American gentleman. He's tall. He's slender. And Wesley James Autry is standing there next to his two young daughters, age six and four, same age as my two daughters. And as Wesley James Autry is, is standing on this subway platform, he notices that next to him, another gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Holopeter, begins to have a seizure. And he begins to shake uh, violently, and he, his jaw is clenched, and he begins to stagger. And sure enough, sort of worst-case scenario, this other gentleman falls off of the platform and onto the rails of the subway track. And so here's the question. In that moment, what would you do if you are Wesley James Autry standing there next to your two young girls? And to make matters worse, as, as, as this gentleman falls onto the track, he's having a seizure, he's, he's not conscious, Wesley James Autry sees the light from an approaching train and he does what i most definitely would not have done (laughs) he jumps onto the tracks and he attempts to to wrestle this this unconscious unresponsive man off of the tracks and back up onto the subway platform but the problem is the guy weighs over 200 pounds he's over six foot tall and he's completely unresponsive and try as he might, Wesley James Autry can't get him back off of the rails and back onto the platform. His two young daughters are watching their dad struggle on the subway tracks. And so Wesley James Autry does the only thing that he can think to do is the light from the train gets closer and closer. He presses this man down between the rails into that little space and he covers him with his own body as the train passes over. And miraculously, there is enough space to where neither one of them are killed. Wesley James Autry is covered with grease, and the train grazes his shins as, as it comes over top of them. They, they hear the sound of his voice come up. Tell my daughters, I'm okay, he says. And so Wesley James Autry was immediately dubbed the subway hero by many news stations. He made an appearance in in 2007 at the State of the Union where George W. Bush said this. He said, despite all of our problems as a nation, all of our divisions, all of our disagreements, he says this. He says, there's something wonderful about a country that produces a brave and humble man like Wesley James Autry. And I think that's true. There are people who do incredible things. And many times, if you ask them, if you ask Wesley James Autry, if you ask many other people who've done heroic things, why did you do it? Right? They respond with this very unhelpful answer. I don't know. <laughs> you ask, What were you thinking? Like that uh, I wasn't. <laughs> If I were thinking, I, I wouldn't have done it, right? A thinking person doesn't leave their two daughters and jump onto the subway rails as there's a train approaching. What, what were you thinking? I, I wasn't thinking, I, I just reacted. And he said very clearly, look, I'm, I'm not a hero. I'm not a hero. And so the question I want to ask today relates to that. What motivates somebody to step out in supernatural faith Even when it seems crazy, even when it seems crazy to the people around you, maybe not as crazy as Wesley James Autry jumping onto the subway rails, leaving his two young daughters behind, but what motivates somebody to step out in supernatural faith when it seems like it's not the reasonable, rational, normal, ordinary thing to do? Wesley James Autry said, I don't really know why I did it, but I said, but I do know this, he said years previous to that, he had a revolver placed to his head at one point, and the trigger was pulled and the gun misfired. And he said, I always had a sense that God left me here for a reason, and now I know a kind of supernatural reason. Why? What motivates somebody to step out when it seems irrational, when it seems Crazy. And I want to ask that question by looking through the lens of this scripture in Genesis chapter 22. It's a scripture called the Akedah, the Akedah of Abraham. And the Akedah is a Hebrew word, it means binding, the binding of Isaac. Christians sometimes talk about the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, but the Jews don't speak of it that way because that would imply that Isaac actually got sacrificed. Which is something that the pagans did. It wasn't something that the Jews were commanded to do. And so they speak of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. But if you know the story, you know it involves an action on the part of Abraham that, that, that seems completely crazy, an act of supernatural faith, an act of obedience that seems crazy. And so I want to read that story today. Genesis chapter 22, you can follow along in your Bibles or, or on the screen. It says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself, Isaac, or sorry, he himself, Abraham, carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb? for the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is, this is God's word. Um, I don't know how many of you are parents, but there are many parts of the Bible that seem crazy. They seem weird. Um, There's a donkey that talks in Genesis, FYI. Um, There are lots of strange things in the Bible, but this thing as a parent seems like the most impossible request that God makes of, of anybody. Take the son, the son whom you love, and kill him. And then to make matters worse, it, it's, it's sort of this, this poignant picture of here's Isaac. He's, he's carrying on his back the wood for his own burnt offering as they ascend the hill. And it's almost like one of those old Westerns where they ask somebody to dig their own grave, right? This extra note of poignant, almost poignant cruelty. If you're ever in a Western and somebody asks you to start digging, just be like, why? That's, that's how it seems. He's, he's carrying the wood for his own, his own death, his own sacrifice, and God commands Abraham to do this impossible thing. And so I, want, I thought about it. in the light of that story from, from Wesley James Autry, the subway hero, both of these things seem crazy, right? That this guy would risk his life in front of his daughters, jump on the subway track, save a guy's life, press him down between the rails. But I thought about how Wesley James Autry is different than Abraham. How Abraham is is different from the subway hero. And and the obvious answer is, well, like Wesley James Autry risked his own life, right? And it would be a very different story if Wesley James Autry is standing on the subway platform, sees the gentleman fall on the tracks with the seizure, hears a divine voice and says, "Um, honey, you get on the tracks, right? I mean, if Wesley James Autry did that, we would say he, he probably has a mental illness if he heard a voice that told him to, to push his daughter onto the tracks, right? And Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, claims exactly that with regard to the Akedah. Christopher Hitchens, in his, his famous book, God is Not Great, he says this, All three monotheisms, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, praise Abraham for being willing to hear voices and then to take his son Isaac for a long and gloomy walk. He goes on, it won't be on the screen, but he says, and then the caprice by which his murderous hand is stayed is written down as a divine mercy. Hitchens reads it as, is that, as if God says, you know, see how nice I am, old man, I didn't make you do it. And then it's written down as mercy. He, he, he says, you'd have to have a mental illness to hear a voice that said, sacrifice your kid and to obey it, he says. And, and as Christians, we might quibble or disagree with parts of Hitchens' Descriptions. It's skewed in in certain ways. It's not voices that Abraham hears, but it's a voice. And more specifically, it's a voice that he has come to know through years of long experience to be faithful. He's come to know it as a promise keeping voice because that voice said that he would have a son, and he did. Even though his body was as good as dead, and even though his wife's womb was, in the words of Scripture, dead. And so there's some things about Hitchens' description that are that are skewed, but I think all of us can relate to it when we read the Akedah. We're like, Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't have done that. I would have, you know, chalked it up to some, you know, spicy Mexican food the night before. I'm not going to Moriah. I'm certainly not sacrificing my kids. So how did Abraham step out in supernatural faith when it seemed crazy, when it seemed irrational? And so just to be upfront to sort of lay all my cards on the table today, here's my, my one big idea for the message, my one key thing I want you to walk away with, and it's simply this. Sometimes living in the supernatural Sometimes living in the supernatural means learning how to say perhaps, perhaps. And I want to sort of offer this one little simple word, perhaps, as a crucial piece of the Christian vocabulary that we need to reclaim. Perhaps, if we're going to live in the, in the supernatural. And I, uh, I took this idea from a guy named N.T. Wright in his massive book on the Apostle Paul, two volumes. You'd think I'd get more out of it than just one short quote, but sometimes that's the way it is. He says this about Paul. He says, sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. He says, if you look at Paul's life, he says, as often as not, Paul sees the divine hand only in retrospect. For in the present, The attempt to discern divine intent often carries a maybe about it. Maybe, Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus. This is the reason he was separated from you. To believe in providence, Wright says, is to learn how to say perhaps. And as far as I can see it, this one word, perhaps, which is stacked upon the foundation of biblical faith. They're not like divorced or separated, it occupies a kind of sacred middle ground between two of the more popular options of the modern world and that more popular options are a kind of crippling pervasive doubt or skepticism that sort of leans towards unbelief on one side and on the other side, a strident dogmatism that claims to have certainty about what one actually believes. And these are kind of the two popular options in the modern world. On one side, this sort of crippling doubt, skepticism, and on the other side, this sort of strident, sometimes angry, abrasive dogmatism, the claim that I have certainty in my beliefs. And we tend to sort of, we tend to sort of teeter-totter sometimes between these popular options, but right in the middle, is the sacred middle ground of biblical supernatural faith and that requires the ability to say perhaps and so I want to talk about those options today perhaps is you could say it's the region of the possible it's the region of of the imagination and it keeps us from sort of falling off the horse on one side or the other. And so if you've got your sermon outline in your, in your update today. I want to talk about these other options. And then I want to come back to the story of Abraham. Through the book of Hebrews actually. To talk about perhaps and supernatural faith. But the first, the first land. The first option is what I've called the land of doubt. A doubt that's pervasive. That can be crippling. Uh, a kind of pervasive skepticism and I have to imagine even though Abraham was an ancient person who didn't share all of our presuppositions I have to imagine as he sort of walked that rocky road up the mountain of Moriah that he had some doubts that he had some some questions that he he wrestled with with this sort of command but even more in the modern world we wrestle with doubt do we not Charles Taylor, the famous philosopher, says, you think about how crazy it is that in the year 1500, it was almost impossible not to believe in God. And by the year 1900, for many people, it seemed almost impossible to believe in God. Right? And we we had this rapid transition from impossible unbelief to in many parts of the world and many people's minds and hearts, seemingly impossible belief because to be a modern person, is to struggle with doubt. And some folks think that's a a great thing. Uh, Another quote from another famous atheist, a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell, he says this. He says, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always certain and wiser people are so full of doubts, right? Right? And, and we may disagree again with Bertrand Russell, but we also have met fools and fanatics who seem dangerously certain of their fanaticism. Have we not? Um, you, you have to be fairly certain as a suicide bomber to blow yourself up, I would think. And so even if we disagree with Russell, there's a certain ring of truth in, in some of this. Uh, to be a modern person is to wrestle sometimes with doubt. The Christian theologian James Smith he writes this. He says, this is what it means to me, a modern person. We're all Thomas now. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, Jesus' disciple. He said, I got to see it to believe it, man. Unless I see the nail holes, unless I see the, the hole that the spear is left, I'm not going to believe he rose from the dead. And James, says, James Smith says, what it means to be a modern person, we're all Thomas. In one way or another the land of of crippling doubt. And so a couple thoughts on this, because all of us struggle with this in one way or another, if if we can admit that in church, if we can be honest in church. A couple thoughts. First thought, doubt is not always a bad thing, is it? It's, It's not always a vice to ask questions, to be to be skeptical. It can be a chance to consider what you actually believe. It can be a mark of humility in some areas to say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to consider further evidence. It it can be a stepping stone in some cases to a firmer faith to go through a season of questions. Because for some of us, the fire of probing questions can be the refining force that God uses to quote the scriptures to bring forth a faith as pure as gold sometimes you have to go through the fire to come forth on the other side so doubt is, is not always a bad thing a second thing doubt is not always a choice that we just choose to make along the buffet line of belief It's not just this calmly considered option in many cases, like if you're going through the options in life and you say, you know, I'll have the fruit medley, I'll have the tuna casserole, and also um, some soul-crushing uncertainty. Could I have that? Um, Like, that's not how it works. Doubt is not always a choice. In some cases, we are ambushed by uncertainty, are we not? Doubt comes looking for us. Like, who could not question at some level the benevolent sovereignty of God after the drowning of a toddler in a backyard pool, after the horror of the Holocaust, after the, the, the pitiless tide of a Southeast Asian tsunami wiping tens and hundreds of thousands of people off the world? Like, who could not, in certain moments of suffering in this life, wrestle with, it's not just a dispassionate choice that we just opt for uh, because we're bored. It, It sometimes ambushes us. It's not always a choice. And then some good news, some good news. Jesus, when we read the scriptures, had incredible empathy and compassion for folks who were honestly wrestling with doubt. He had incredible empathy and compassion for those who were wrestling with doubt. Mark 9 is an example of this. A man brings Jesus, his, his, his son, who's, who's writhing and struggling with this demonic, unclean spirit. And he says, Lord, if you can make him clean. And Jesus responds, You know, if I, if I can, if I can. He says, all you need to do is to believe. And the man responds with this beautiful paradox, right? I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> because for many of us, belief and unbelief coexist. Just like that dude in the Gospels. I believe. Help my unbelief. And what does Jesus say? He's like, sorry, that's not good enough. Got to be 100%. no. He heals the boy in front of his father because he has empathy for those who who doubt. Jude, the little little book of Jude, one chapter, has this beautiful verse in it. It says this: "Be merciful to those who doubt." right? It doesn't say, "Be, you know, angry." or be condemning. It doesn't say, any of it. it says be merciful to those who doubt. So here's an honest question for being honest in church. Are you, are you wrestling with doubt today? Are you in that, that land, that first extreme, that first option of sort of pervasive uncertainty or, or, or skepticism? And if you are, I would encourage you to, to pray this prayer. God, I am far from certain that I'm certain enough to yield to you. I'm certain enough to cling, to trust. I just read this book on what biblical faith is by a scholar named Matthew Bates. And he talks about this faith as this allegiance The Greek word pistis, faith, allegiance to God. And he says, well, how certain do you have to be for it to really count as pistis, as allegiance? And he has this this wonderful line. He says, certain enough to yield. Certain enough to yield. Not mathematical, logical, test tube, scientific certainty, but certain enough to, to trust in the land of doubt. God, I believe, help my unbelief that's the first the first extreme the first land the second one the opposite side the land of dogmatism the land of dogmatism we could talk about this as if if doubt if the doubt I'm talking of is this sort of pervasive skepticism then the land of dogmatism is an abrasive claim to certainty in matters of faith and it seems to me that these two extremes often exist in a reciprocal relationship, do they not? Because as one group sort of teeters on the edge of uncertainty and doubt and skepticism, the response from others is a sort of pervasive or strident or sometimes angry claim to certainty. And that claim to certainty has this function of of driving some doubters further away while causing others Just sort of quash their questions and claim that they don't have any of that that struggle, any of that uncertainty. And so it has a reciprocal relationship, this this, this dogmatism or this claim to certainty. G.K. Chesterton, the great writer from a previous century says this, he says, the special mark of the modern world is not just that it's skeptical, but that it is dogmatic without knowing it. I love that quote because he's not just talking about Christians who are like really dogmatic and claim to have all the answers. He's talking about all sorts of groups within the modern world who are dogmatic without even knowing it. I think he would talk that way about the guys, the two atheists that we just mentioned earlier, Christopher Hitchens and Bertrand Russell. They are atheistic dogmatists. They are atheistic fundamentalists. They've simply exchanged one form of fundamentalism for another. And they're dogmatic without, without even knowing it in some cases. But, so what do I mean by the land of dogmatism as this, this alternative to crushing, to crushing doubt? I, I wrote this recently that in many cases, dogmatism, what I'm talking about is a matter of tone emphasis it's it's not simply trusting in faithful Orthodox historic Christian faith things like the, the inspiration of Scripture the resurrection of Jesus the things like that that's not what I mean by dogmatism I, I would proudly cling to those things right but it's a matter of tone and emphasis it's not as, as John Wesley called it the heart strangely warmed but rather the, the face strangely flushed. A kind of angry claim to certainty that, that speaks and types in all caps sometimes. And in some cases, the way we deal with our questions is we project a certainty that we don't actually have. And so this famous quote that, you know, "Methinks you doth protest too much, sort of wafts over the internet comment boxes and over the dogmatic claims to certainty. This sort of, this angry arrogance or what I've also called at some points the Elijah heresy. If you know the story of Elijah, you know. At one point, he is very angry because he says, I am the only one who's really following God, right? I'm the only one left. Everyone has abandoned the true faith, right? And the irony is that in saying that, he has committed the act of false prophecy. (laughs) Because God says, actually, dude, no, you're not the only one, right? My family is bigger. There are others that you don't know about, right? Get down off of your prophetic high horse. First, take a nap. He actually has him do that. Um, You're not the only one, right? Right? you're not the only one. And sometimes there's a sense in that with Christian dogmatism that I'm the only one who really is being faithful and the whole world has gone to hell. It's the Elijah heresy and it's wrong. That's the kind of dogmatism that that I'm talking about. Uh, And so it's sometimes a prideful issue, uh, an issue of presumption that I have all of the answers to complex questions. But the reality is on spiritual matters, we are talking about a mysterious, transcendent, unseen God. We're not like doing paint-by-numbers projects at the kindergarten table. And there are questions that I don't know the answer to as a professor, as a pastor, as a theologian. And Paul says, we see now as through a glass dimly and we know in part and so while like crushing skepticism or pervasive skepticism isn't the answer at the same time this sort of claim to total certainty or dogmatism isn't isn't the answer either doubt nor dogmatism thomas kidd is a professor of church history at baylor university a really warm-hearted Christian, and he he writes this. He says, too often, pop Christian apologetics, and apologetics is an attempt to defend the Christian faith, right? Too often, pop Christian apologetics proceeds with the assumption that Christianity is so self-evidently true that you'd have to be stupid or dishonest to reject it he goes on it won't be on the screen he says this is a bad approach for a number of reasons not least that it implies that believers saw the light because they were smart enough to see it and for those of us with a really high view of grace such a smug do such a smug view will never do right he says we didn't find Christ because we were more brilliant than everybody else and sometimes that that form of dogmatism can be dangerous. And that's what brings me back to Abraham. Right? Abraham was not praised in the scriptures for his certainty. He was praised for his obedient faith. And he occupies this sort of sacred middle ground between pervasive skepticism and strident dogmatism over over here. He wasn't praised for his mathematical certainty. He was praised for his faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we ask this question, why did he do it? Like, how could any father trust, as he said, that, yeah, me and the boy, we're going to go worship and we'll come back to you, right? How could he believe that? And Hebrews 11 is the only text that I know of that gives us a window into the why of Abraham, a kind of window into his psyche in in the book of Hebrews. And it it says this, by faith, Abraham, so it's rooted in faith, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced, he who had embraced the promises Was about to sacrifice his one and only son. So it says, he was really going to do it. He was going to follow through. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And then the, the crucial phrase it says this Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive back isaac from death Uh, abraham reasoned that god could raise the dead and so he was willing to step out in faith and i put an asterisk up there because as you know hebrews was not written in english and the greek word there is the word lagesomenos and you may even recognize in that lagis or lagas the word that we use for logic or thinking or reasoning. And so that's why the NIV translates it as Abraham reasoned to this conclusion. But but other translations say it differently. One of them says that he reckoned. It's a very sort of southern translation. I reckon that God can raise the dead. Another one puts it sort of more even less certainty in it than that. It says he had considered, Abraham considered that God could raise the dead. And you're like, man, if I'm going to sacrifice my kid, it better be more than a consideration that God's going to raise him from the dead. Abraham reasoned forth. He stretched out into the darkness and he was willing to say, perhaps, perhaps that even if my son is burned up on this altar god can raise him back to life and there's a note of imagination there's a note of I mean, it's interesting it doesn't happen that way does it god doesn't complete the story by letting abraham slaughter his son burn him up into ash and then put the molecules back together it doesn't go the way abraham had considered. But that little moment of reasoning, reckoning, consideration, was the thing that allowed him to, to, to step out, even though his consideration didn't end up to be the thing that actually happened. You could say that by faith, what Abraham did in that one moment was he learned how to say Perhaps, perhaps God will raise him back from the dead. And so he obeyed by faith. Abraham said, perhaps. And in faith, he acted in obedience. It's it's fascinating that he would believe in resurrection. Resurrection was not a universal belief in the Jewish Old Testament. It was not a universal belief amongst the Jews of Jesus' day. And you're like, well, why in the world would he think that God was going to, you know, raise him from the dead? I mean, you can, you can imagine, like, wounds can be sutured. Maybe, you know, a, a stalled heart could be restarted. But how do you heal ash? Because he's, he's going to burn him up on the altar. And some scholars say there's this one hint of why Abraham was willing to consider this. And it's this. On two occasions, the Bible is very clear that his body was as good as dead when God showed up. He's old. And his wife's womb was, quote, dead. It uses the language of death describe Abraham's withered body and Sarah's withered womb and what Abraham knew I think is if this God had conquered death twice before in Isaac's conception he could do it again that this God had revealed himself as a death conquering God and so he was willing he was willing to trust The best predictor of future actions is past actions. And so Abraham is willing to trust. He's willing to say, perhaps, perhaps this isn't the end. So I want you to do this, application. I want you to think back on your own life. Maybe you don't have an instance like Abraham where God has literally, you know, you're 100 years old, you don't have any kids, miraculously, you have kids. Maybe you don't have that kind of story. But, but think back on your life. Is there an area in which God has shown himself faithful to you? Despite long odds, is there an area when you've, you've seen him do something that was life-giving in the same way that he did for Abraham and sarah and then regardless of whether you're struggling with doubt or not w- would you be willing on the basis of that to sort of step out in obedience again to be to be certain enough to yield how has god shown himself faithful to you in your life how have you seen his his supernatural Power and then on the basis of that, would you be willing to to believe in that supernatural power to trust in it? Even even more, if not if not just your own experience, like not all of us have stories where God like cured years and years of infertility, like He did for Abraham and Sarah. Um, if you can't just go to an example like that from your own life, maybe think of this example. Um, the story says that that Isaac. Ascended Moriah, I've got a picture of it even, carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. The beloved son ascends the mountain carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. And the promise at the end of the passage is that God will provide a lamb. It's very clear in the Gospels, they make mention of this, that Jesus ascended calvary carrying his own cross they make mention of that on multiple occasions they also refer to him with that same language as genesis chapter 22 the, the, the beloved son that jesus is is the sacrificial beloved son and he too carries the wood for his own sacrifice and so maybe for you today being willing to say perhaps is for his sake. Perhaps if God loves me that much to send his son to die for me, that Christ would carry the wood of his own sacrifice. Perhaps there's hope for my future, for my marriage, for my battle with addiction, cancer, for my kids, for my my job for my deceased friend that I'm hoping, praying that I'll see someday again, for my diseased culture that looks like it's broken beyond repair. Sometimes believing in the supernatural means means learning how to say perhaps on the basis of what God has done for you in the past and then stepping out and yielding in The presence. That's part of what it means to live a supernatural life. And so let's pray. Let's pray about that this morning as we close. God, I confess I don't have all the answers. I don't have a mathematical certainty that can prove all the things in the Bible. But I do have faith, I do have trust. And so I pray for my friends here, some who are struggling with this pervasive doubt and skepticism questions that they they feel like they can't even ask. And for others who maybe are responding with a kind of strident, angry dogmatism that makes the matter worse, Lord, I pray that we would live in that middle space, not the land of skepticism, not the land of total certainty, but the land of faith. That we would be willing to imagine the possibility of a supernatural existence. That death is not the end. That there's more going on here that we, than we can sometimes see. That we will be like Abraham. And despite our questions, we will yield. Lord, I pray that this week you would show yourself to those of us in this room who are struggling with doubt. Just like you were empathetic and compassionate to that father in the book of Mark that you would be so to us. We thank you for your sacrifice, most of all, your resurrection, and the hope that you give us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. If you would like prayer for any reason, there'll be some folks up here who would love to pray with you. Have a great week.